You're listening to the Retail Exchange Podcast in association with Retail Focus Magazine. Brought to you by Visual Thinking, inspiring retail performance. Hello, I'm Declan Curry. Welcome to this Retail Exchange podcast on Stores of the Future 2.0. If you work for a retailer or you're a supplier, if you're a store designer, a visual merchandiser, a marketing specialist or a shop fitter, then this podcast is essential listening for you. All sorts of retailers have unveiled stores of the future, from supermarkets to electronic stores, from bed showrooms to bike shops. They're supposed to offer us a tantalising glimpse into the future of retail. They are also expensive, demanding significant investment by retailers. But do they really demonstrate innovation and progress? Are they really worth the time and the money? My guests are Nathan Watts, who's the creative director at Fitch, Carl McKeever, who's the founder and managing director at Visual Thinking, Paul West, who's the strategy director at DL and Pi, and James Briggs, who's the associate director of design at RPA Group. Over the next half hour or so, we're all going to discuss if stores of the future have a future and deserve that future. So, Paul West from DL and Pi, let's start with you. You've worked with some of the big names. what is the role of stores of the future? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I think it, it really comes down to what the the role of the brand is and the role uh, and what the customer needs are. So, you know, what the customer insight is, therefore, how can the brand behave around that? Um, there are lots of roles that we work with. Um, firstly, is to demonstrate the brand purpose to the customer. So really um, inspire and educate the customer with what the brand has to offer. Um, also around service and support. How can you help people in their daily lives uh, doing what they need to do? Another role is that they are like clubs uh, to gather an audience or a fan base and demonstrate that you know this this brand has a has a has a clear following and and also importantly is to sell um, and also to drive traffic online so there's a real mix of things there that the store of the future has to fulfill so this is a real sort of multiple selection of targets and aspirations that uh, it has to meet i wonder is it perhaps too long a list that stores of the future are trying to do too many things. Well, I think if it's trying to do too many things, that list is too long, definitely. I think um, brands need to focus on what the purpose of that store is trying to do. Is it a store? Is it a club? Is it a sanctuary? What's the role of that? You know, sometimes stores can be like clubs for fan bases, and it's purely that. Uh, Other times they're there to demonstrate new products and services. So trying to focus the attention on what the role of that store needs to be is, is key. Paul West, thank you. Uh, Carl McKeever, what are your thoughts? I think it depends on why a store of the future is actually being proposed in the first place. And of course, there are a number of motivations why brands might do this. Sometimes it's for pure reinvigoration purposes. So if a brand has had years of underinvestment, perhaps a new management team recognise that actually things need to be done. And focusing the organisation around a, a store of the future project is a good way to actually, in a sense, create a point of motivation for all of the teams to think about really how they're going to create transformational change. But of course, that's not the only reason. Some brands might embark on a store of the future project purely because actually they are trying to prep a business for sale. So it might be that they are wanting to have a showcase, flagship, all singing, all dancing store that can be touted to potential investors to say, look, it's a great brand name, perhaps the estate isn't in the shape it should be, but we've actually got a formula ready for you that's packaged up, ready to go if you want to buy it and take it forward. 
so long, of course, as it is possible to then roll that out across the entire estate. It's all very well having a store that shows what might be or what could be, but there's also a danger that it shows what isn't possible, what can't be. Exactly. And I think that's one of the inherent traps, really, in a store of the future, kind of almost uh, ethos in its own right. If you are purely looking at a single base project for, let's say, the purposes of a sale, the way you would approach that is entirely different to something which might be scalable and something which can roll out affordably and, and sustainably across a whole retail chain. So I think it's very important that when considering a store of the future project, that there is a certain level of honesty and perhaps candor about why, what, how, and the true intentions of what that project are really set to deliver. Are there too many attributes on that list? Is our stores of the future trying to do too much? Um, I think the, the list, as Paul said, is, is, is very much brand specific and dependent on the, the objectives that they need to pursue, whether those are commercial objectives, customer objectives or, or brand objectives. However, I think fundamentally the one thing any store of the future project has got to tackle is innovation. And I think if alongside that there is a recognition that there is going to be some parts that work very well, some pits where we can take learning and others which frankly are not required, really what stores of future can be is, is a catalyst, is a catalyst catalyst for change, and it's a way to get the organisation to think about itself and from a new perspective. Uh, James Briggs from the RPA Group, the uh, Associate Director of Design. You were nodding vigorously during uh, some of Paul West's uh, uh, points. What was your perspective? Well, I think to uh, to Paul's point, one of the key things that, uh, that we're seeing recently is uh, this idea of showrooming, is that actually the physical space uh, may not actually be the key driver of, of those sales. Um, but what is important is it's a very real touch point for any of the products, any of the services that, uh, um, that, that are being offered. Um, that's on a very sort of deep psych- psychological level, incredibly important for, for any customer to, to make that connection uh, and to, to drive a very real relationship with the, uh, uh, with the, between the brand and the customer. That doesn't sound an awful lot like the future. That sounds a lot like the present, that these stores are simply showing what you can do here and now today rather than giving us a glimpse of what the future might hold. No, absolutely. Unless you can engage at a fundamental level with your your customer, then, then any gloss on top of that is smoke and mirrors. Are stores of the future really giving us a tantalising glimpse of the future. Paul West. I think um, a, a question about a tantalising glimpse of the future is... Isn't is, that what they're supposed to do? <laughs> is, is it, do people want a, a glimpse of the future? I think for many people, the future is moving very quickly and they're seeking reassurance in more familiar aspects of retailing. So the neighbourhood versus the mall, uh, the social space versus the big shiny flagship. So I think if, if the brand is trying to convey a vision of the future and it's a very you know tech-led brand or it's a futuristic brand, I think something that obviously Apple do very well and it's a you know it's, it's got a certain style that suits that brand purpose then great but i think at the same time um people could be quite cynical if uh, i suppose if somebody like wh smith started to create a glossy white space with ipads everywhere um, i don't think it would uh, quite fit as well as uh, one would hope and nathan what's we can't take the customer out of this discussion they are absolutely at the core of it, the store of the future has to engage with them, has to learn from them. Otherwise, 
it's a totally wasted experiment. Absolutely. And uh, going back to uh, the point that Paul made, uh, you know, there there is a much more complicated world out there with the omni-channel, multi-channel angle that retailers and brands have to take. And um, I think that it's important to to kind of understand that the role of the store is is changing, but it's still the best channel to deliver a kind of empathetic kind of position and a human uh, element, an experiential kind of element of that brand. And it provides a sensorial touch point for the customer. So it, it's, it has an undeniable role in the future, especially as we become more of an online uh, consumer. I think one of the words that comes up frequently in discussion with clients is is whether it's, whether it's evolution or revolution. And I think really in terms that depends on what they're doing already. Um, a brand which has steadfastly and consistently delivered incremental change over years and has almost had its own improvement strategy may in fact need a store of the future project to catapult it into the next phase of its, of its awareness with consumers. And of course, consumers have a lot of choice these days. They're, you know, they have exposed to many brands which are changing and evolving all the time. So actually sometimes evolutionary change gets lost. It can just be missed on a day-to-day basis. So making a big, bold, new statement is often a way to command attention. But of course, where that really then comes to the crunch is you can execute one store or perhaps a small group of trial stores, but for most brands, delivering a consistent message nationwide or internationally is key to success. That was Carl McKeever, Nathan Watts. Well, I think, you know, it is absolutely fundamental that that, that, store, that uh, stores of the future do have that capacity to flex and evolve and change because it, it seems to be even more important that any store uh, environment that is that is built uh, for the future has the ability to evolve and that we don't just think about uh, stores uh, anymore in a traditional sense that they have some kind of seven to eight year life cycle. They need to be evolving uh, on a yearly basis, on an annual basis and, and be more than just a place to sell things but a place to host events and demonstrate something different to the customer on a weekly basis. James Briggs. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. Uh, I agree completely. Uh, the thing that I, I struggle with uh, with revolution uh, is where that just becomes a grand gesture um, and uh, it becomes superficial. Um, the customers these days are far more uh, evolved themselves. Um, there's, uh, you know, Generation Z um, will not put up with any uh, uh, shallow impressions of of being engaged with. Uh, they'll dismiss it outright, uh, and they'll go and find the next um, the, the next opportunity to to express themselves. So I worry that revolution can be too reactive and not actually address the the real core of what the customer wants. I th- I, I think if you are an evolving brand, that um, uh, you know, you're taking that time to understand your customers' needs and actually you're looking at the, the environment that you're working with, the ecosystem you're working with, and you're responding directly to that. So you're addressing a very direct um, requirement from your customer. James Briggs, thank you. We're talking about stores of the future 2.0. Uh, we are Nathan Watts of Fitch, uh, Carl McKeever of Visual Thinking, Paul West of D. Allen Poe and James Brakes of RPA Group. I'm Declan Curry and this is a Retail Exchange podcast. Carl McKeever, this brings us to the question of what shoppers want from tomorrow's stores. Uh, and the sub-question is, are retailers and the designers of concept stores and all those involved with them, 
actually paying enough attention to the shopper on the ground. And I think this is where it's quite, um, you know, easy for people working in the industry who are often very sophisticated in their thinking and trying to do their very best to create newness to forget some of the fundamentals. Shopping is a transactional and social experience. And what all customers are really looking for are things such as convenience, fair price, good choice, uh, and reliable quality of the goods that they buy. Now, everything else that we can layer on top of that in terms of store experience or customer journey or any other sort of fancy buzzwords of the day are all those kind of layers of wrapping and gloss that we're talking about to essentially create differentiation. What, What do customers actually want? What do shoppers want from stores of the future? Yeah, well, I think that there is a there is a, a shift, which is that we're not expecting customers necessarily to just be buying products. It's more about what can I achieve with you as a brand and a retailer. And I think we have to be realistic about what we mean by future stores, because actually uh, we're still dealing with the products and the services of the now, not of the future. Uh, and, and I think that we have to therefore be realistic. And there are many disruptive technologies that are changing the way that people are buying services and goods uh, beyond just the, the physical retail environment. And I think one of the probably the most interesting examples out there that, that does feel genuinely of the future is Amazon Go, where they are, they are pushing technology uh, to, to present an idea about retail, which is very different. Paul West, from your experience, how integral is the everyday shopper? in your thinking about how you develop a store of the future, how you implement it, how you monitor what goes on within it? Well, I think one part of it is understanding what customers need. So if you can deliver on that, that's fantastic. But the other side of the equation is delivering something that customers could be wowed by that haven't even decided that they want yet. So there's an element of ex- meeting expectation, there's an element of delivering surprise and wow at the same time. Um, other things that work is really delivering what the brand purpose is through that. So there's the brand perspective and the customer perspective, blending those two things together. But overall, creating an experience that, yeah, satisfies but also delights at the same time. And a slightly harder question, what doesn't work, but we have learned from it? Hmm. Well, I think if it's something that's purely a vanity project, it's often, um, you know, seen right through um, by the customer. We're increasingly savvy as customers these days and we can see what brands are up to and what they're trying to do. Um, It has to be something that's useful. It's got to be inspiring. It's got to be useful. And it's got to really um, deliver on what the brand's trying to do. And I think if it doesn't do that, then it's, it's, it's a big issue. Also, there's the aspect of, of driving sales. You know, um, 10, 15 years ago, before the, the boom of, of online shopping, then we had the brand space, didn't we? We had this kind of typical brand center where you didn't really buy anything, but you could explore. It's quite hard to measure something like that with the effectiveness. Whereas today, we can measure things like how much traffic it drives online. We can measure things like how much footfall is, you know, is happening around the store. Uh, brand advocacy shares on different social media channels. So we're able to measure things and the store of the future has a role to be able to drive all of those uh, business objectives. Um, So you can clearly see what doesn't work in that respect. 
to add to, add to Paul, um, what you're saying there is I think there are a number of measures that you need to look for. And certainly there are soft measures around things such as changes in perceptions and and shifts in, in how the customer would perceive those brands and engage with them at a, a preference level. But of course, the bottom line is really what matters. And of course, it's the ability of any new store concept to deliver on the numbers. And that's where combined with the ambitions around the look and feel and how we're going to create a, a new vision of, of what that company is about also has to be absolutely stitched in from the outset what the commercial objectives are to leverage that change in performance and similarly what the costs are going to be to execute that on a nationwide basis because of course one of the worst things can happen and the biggest risks for a store of the future project is how it could distort customer perceptions by having a handful of super smart super shiny stores in some locations and then less than better than average elsewhere making the rest of the estate look a bit tatty. Indeed. Uh, Nathan? My question to that would be more around how the, the format fits in or how that particular store fits into the entire format network of that, of that store. If I take Nike Town, for an example, on Oxford Street, it has a very clear, distinct role uh, within the entire estate of Nike within the UK and arguably around the world where Nike Towns exist. And it has, a, it has a clear role there as a beacon for that brand. And I think it represents a kind of future vision for that retailer. Uh, and there may be some elements that drip down to the, to, the, uh, to, the, to the network elsewhere, but it has a very distinct role in that sense. It doesn't need to uh, uh, be um, represented purely on a financial basis. It, it's there to represent the brand and to really be a beacon for that brand uh, and to its consumers. Carl, that's an interesting point because you know, there you have a... Uh, a, a, a concept store, and its job is not to sell. It is to reinforce a brand identity. Absolutely, and I think that's where, if you look at uh, in Nike's distribution, it's in some ways quite a unique model because they're not just trying to retail from their own stores, but also from multi-brand spaces, from third-party vendor, and on a wholesale model. So for Nike, they need these brand flagships or ambassadors or temples of excellence, whatever whatever the buzzword, to really demonstrate to the wider consumer, you know, this is leadership, this is what good looks like, and we are, you know, the best of the rest. But where I would really argue that a store of the future could actually be quite in some ways quite damaging for a brand is where perhaps its motivations are not as as honest as perhaps as they should be Nathan uh, well I think uh, uh, what Carl touched on there was really the difference between I think brands at retail and retailers who have quite different challenges and I think it comes down to as he said that the distribution of the products that that brand takes uh, into and in Nike's example many many different retailers and spaces versus retailers who are there purely to sell products within their own spaces of other brands and I think that the challenges there are different and we have for example, worked with a brand uh, called Centerpoint, which are the largest retailer in the Middle East. And we have been developing a store of the future for them, uh, which launched just last week in Doha. And the, the example there was really, I, I've chosen to bring it up because it's, it, it fits into this idea of a retailer who needs to re reinvigorate their brand. They haven't done very much in terms of design uh, with their spaces for many years. And uh, the challenge there was to really invigorate that brand and demonstrate it to the region or demonstrate their brand to the region with this one beacon store that they hope will then they will test and learn from 
and pass on and and move some of the elements through into their store formats across uh, the Middle East region. And I think that's where the role of the the store of the future is really important in terms of being able to try something in real life on a big scale and be able to learn and understand how to to make the most of the elements uh, so they can uh, scale those down and make them cost-effective to roll out across many locations. But there, the the purpose of the store of the future is to be an inspiration. It's an inspiration. It's also an important aspect for the associates or the people of their brand to see that they are they have an aspiration as a brand to move forward. Uh, and I think that can be a big rallying call for the retailer and its own people. Uh, uh, but then also to demonstrate uh, how they can, as as you say, how they can move on in the eyes of the customer. James. Yeah, Nathan's absolutely right. The um, store associates uh, uh, of of late ha- have become those brand ambassadors. You know, they are no longer people who just control inventory in a in a physical store. Um, they are experts, uh, and and this is part of that shift um, in uh, in where we see the store of the future going. Uh, is we we need to radically rethink about their role and how they drive that brand forward. So you have, uh, for instance, uh, Rafa Cycle Club uh, is uh, manned by absolute fanatics uh, of uh, of the cycling world. Uh, the space itself offers what you were talking about, Paul, was that club space. You know, it has a, an incredible cafe with, <laughs> with a really good offer there that you can sit in amongst all these experts, in amongst your couriers and all the other people that frequent that. Um, and it's that genuine engagement. It's that thing. It's that precious element that, uh, that, that every store of the future is going to need to, uh, to really perpetuate that. Talk to me about technology. Is the purpose of a store of the future to find new, more efficient ways of working? Or is it to actually use technology and embed it in the customer experience? So the customer gets a much better experience, whether they're online only, whether they are in the physical store or a mix of both. Paul West. Uh, I think technology, it's a, it's, a, it's a big topic and we're talking about it with all our clients uh, at the moment. And um, I think when used as part of the strategy, like Argos, technology is great. You know, it speeds up the process. It makes it easy to use. But at the same time, as customers, consumers, we all have so much technology around us on a daily basis. And increasingly, we're using store experiences like clubs to actually escape from technology as well. Um, and actually, it's, it's, it's a place providing things to do rather than things to buy. So often our approach to uh, to digital and technology at DNP is technology that ultimately brings people together as opposed to isolates them on their own devices and things, which is a, is a, a big issue for retailers at the moment. James Briggs. I think we've become so desensitised to the new and latest thing that it's almost become an everyday expectation. Um, I think, uh, you know, this is why we're moving back to disruptive retailing uh, to make a point of difference. Uh, because we've seen where AR can go, we've seen where VR can go. Um, uh, there's there's very few retailers who have found um, a very convincing way of actually putting that into action that 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 is consistent with their with their brand. So yeah, as I said, moving back to disruption, that's why you get Adidas creating knitwear. Um, you know, that's why you get uh, Nike starting to create 
um, uh, you know, on the premises, printed, personalized products. It's it's those things that are causing the point of difference, not necessarily the the hardware and the software themselves. Nathan Watch. And I think the key thing to point out here is really what the differences between online and, and the physical space and what you can achieve in each of those. And really product exploration, touching and feeding those products is still uh, not something that one can do in the store. And so uh, a good example of this is a store we've uh, we've we've launched in the, in the US called Perch, which is a high-end luxury kitchen and bathroom retailer. And the whole store experience is, is focused around trying before you buy. And it's really, uh, you know, at its, at its heart is an opportunity to actually take your clothes off and get naked and step in a shower and actually try these extremely expensive uh, shower heads in the store. And I think that that as, a, as an example of really genuinely getting to test and try products is, is, is fascinating and really is, is what it should be about. Carl McKeever. And I think it really, I kind of really just almost want to represent the sort of voice of the shopper here, really, and say stores of the future are great. And we all love a, you know, swanky new experience. But actually, I feel somewhat sorry for many of the shoppers who will visit a WH Smith store, let's say, in, a, in an international airport or station, and find, wow, this very competent, very smart, well-organised, well-run retailer, only to come home and totally find... Totally different experience. Yeah, from... an entirely different experience. So I think, you know, brands have to be very clear do you want to put all of your money into a great big innovative experimental uh, project which can focus hearts and minds within the organization and deliver something transformational and new what you're saying is there has to be follow-through yeah you or do you there's no point or spread it far it's, all, it's all very well being inspirational the rest of it but uh, at some stage you need to take the read the store of the future take what you've learned from it and start implementing them. Because the shopper who shops in Blue Water also shops in Tunbridge Wells and may live in Gravesend. And if you have a branch of the same store in each of those locations, do you want a diminishing scale of return in terms of level of experience, level of quality, and level of overall satisfaction? Uh, Paul West, you've, um, you and your organisation have worked with Argos on the rollout of its new digital offering for the modern age, you, know, you can't. There aren't many estates that are much bigger uh, than the Argos one. So that really is an acid test of what Carl is talking about about the need to implement what you learn from the concept store. Mm, well, Argos was a big story a, a few years ago, and um, that's continuing to roll out in a you know in a in a very successful way across the country. I think. That was right for Argos in terms of being very technology-led um, and um, really c combining convenience with service and allowing the staff to serve as opposed to purely just find products back of house for you. So there's a different relationship between staff and consumer there. Um, I think rather than store of the future, it's about creating relevant stores. And that could be a relevant flagship like Lululemon. Um, it could be something very small and low-key like Mamas and Papas or something high-tech and seamless like Argos. Very different solutions. They're not trying to be some kind of showcase for the brand, but actually relevant for the customer. Carl. And I would just add to that, uh, and I think it's also in response to an earlier question of yours, Declan, you know, what works and what makes it work. In our experience of visual thinking, the most successful, whether it's a store of the future or, or even a retailer which is actually having a, a relaunch or a revamp of its existing estate, it's about 
collective responsibility and ownership. So if the management team approach this in a unified way, where there are agreed and shared responsibilities from buying and marketing and commercial and trading, and there is an accountability for all stakeholders as part of the project to help it succeed, that's what makes it work. The very worst thing that can happen is for a store of the future or, or a similar project to be owned by the marketing department or the estates department. If it doesn't have cross-functional buy-in, it will fail, however good it looks and however much money is spent on it. It's the retailers that ultimately will own that store in terms of how it trades, how it's staffed, how it's well stocked and how it performs. And having their involvement early on in the process is crucial to success, to critique ideas, to make sure that they are sense-checked for any potential risks or failures, and really to get their understanding and engagement so that they can share that and that they can take some ownership in terms of how it's delivered into the business. James nodded his head so violently while you were talking that I thought he was going to knock his uh, microphone off the table. Clearly, uh, a nod of agreement, I think. Yeah, I think um, design, as a design consultant, uh, you know, we are moving away from um, uh, who has the best looking uh, display systems uh, and, and really moving into uh, educating our clients um, uh, and really trying to uh, make them understand of of the world of joined up thinking, you know, of marketing, um, joining with estates, joining with every single other element of that business to actually understand what that common goal is, uh, because ultimately that's what's going to drive the future. You've been listening to this Retail Exchange podcast. I know you'll want to thank my guest, Nathan Watts, the creative director at Fitch, Carl McKeever, managing director and founder of Visual Thinking, Paul West, strategy director at DL and Pau, and James Briggs, the associate director of design at RPA Group. I'm Declan Curry. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange. Subscribe on our website at theretailexchange.co.uk to receive exclusive first-listen access to future episodes of our new podcast series as we explore key issues affecting the world of in-store. And why not join the debate on Twitter by following at RetailFocus, hashtag RetailExchange, or online at retailfocus.co. The Retail Exchange is brought to you by retail transformation agency Visual Thinking, in association with Retail Focus magazine. You can find out more about Visual Thinking online at visualthinking.co.uk and on Twitter at Shop Tactics. Thank you for listening. <laughs>